Hey there, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're looking at Preacher issues 17 and 18. Alright, these issues are written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon and covers by Glenn Fabry. That's sort of normal, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty much always the way it is with Preacher. That's basically what we've been having for... 16 issues so far. Still, it's important to give credit where it's due. Yeah, and, and they deserve a lot of credit because this is one of the best comic books ever. Right, now where did we leave our heroes in this comic book? Well, Tulip was captured and then Cassidy was captured trying to save Tulip, but then Tulip quickly became uncaptured, but Cassidy, they got him. Right. They got him all the had, way to France. When Harris Starr had a gun pointed at Tulip, Cassidy came in and said, Sure, no, I'm Jesse Custer. <laughs> yeah, that's Except right. that he was, he's actually faking Jesse's accent right now, which we're going to continue to see. Yeah, and Hair Star, for those who don't know, why wouldn't you know? Just listen to a previous episode of our podcast. Anyway, Hair Star is a representative of an organization called the Grail, except he's actually working within the Grail, against the Grail, from within. So he's really a representative of an organization called himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... Jesse has in turn captured two of his guys, or more accurately, a guy and a girl, Featherstone and Hoover. I got yes. that backwards. It's Hoover and Featherstone if I say a guy and a girl. Right. Featherstone is the girl. Hoover is the man. Yeah. So this is kind of a little interstitial sub-arc between all the mess in San Francisco that led to Cassidy being captured and the big action-heavy arc that leads to him being rescued. Spoiler warning. Just yeah. kind of setting up how they get on their way to the Grail's secret hideout. Well, yeah. So our first issue here, Preacher number 17, this is, you know, it has a little bit of action in it, but it's mostly an expository issue. Yeah. So this issue is titled Miracle Man. And we have a cover here depicting Cassidy in front of a stained glass window in which all of the facets are Grail henchmen in their gray suits and their big golden grails and their sunglasses. It's true. You don't actually see a lot of henchmen dressed like this in the comic book, but but that's what they look like on the cover. Well, the red ties are their distinctive thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and Cassidy's looking both kind of saintly and also kind of confused as these two henchmen kneel in front of him. <laughs> yes. And he's got uh, he's got a bottle of clear liquor in his hand. So, not, not whiskey. Mm. I guess it could be, you know, white ghost or whatever. Mm, okay, yeah. So this continues like a favorite juxtaposition that you see on Preacher covers, as he's being presented as a holy figure, but is also clutching a cigarette in a bottle. Yeah. Yeah, and even without the cigarette in the bottle, he's, you know, you would just know that he's... A ne'er-do-well? Yeah. Okay. It's bad news. So we open on a plane where we have Cassidy carefully pushing the window closed without exposing himself to sunlight, kind of arching his arm over the window to push it closed. Yeah, this, like, claw with which he uses to, to lower the shade after explaining to Hair Star that he has a skin condition is, yeah, probably the best thing on this page. And it's also on this page when we see that they're being escorted by a U.S. Air Force craft. Yeah. That's a friend of ours, Reverend. You'll find we have them everywhere. 
And we can also see in Cassidy's dialogue that he is continuing the bad impression of Jesse Custer. Yes. After being asked if he doesn't like the sunlight, he says, I sure don't. I got me one of them skin conditions, see? <laughs> Jesse, meanwhile, is having the best breakfast of his life in the Ritz-Carlton in the Grails Hotel Room in San Francisco. Well, Tulip says that it's the best breakfast of her life. Jesse is not so impressed. He says could have used a couple biscuits. Right, and then Tulip tells him that the Ritz-Carlton doesn't do biscuits, and furthermore that he could try a croissant, which is probably just as good. Yeah. Tulip says, By the way, I hope you guys don't mind us running up your room service tab. It seemed like too good an opportunity to miss, that's all. And we now see that they have Hoover and Featherstone tied up, and Featherstone replies, Oh, we don't mind a bit, but you're going to once you realize what it is you're dealing with. You're going to regret this for the rest of your very short lives. And believe me, neither Hoover nor myself will tell you word one of what you want to know. Sure you will. Jesse replies using the word of God. So, this brings us to the title page. We got another scene change in as many pages. And we are back to the plane, which is taking Cassidy and Hairstar to Masada lands in a little facility next to a very picturesque and impressive cliff. Yes, and Star explains that this is not the real Masada in Israel, this is the Grail stronghold in southern France. Yeah, now it seems in this scene like they're walking off the plane in daylight. Yeah, the sky's kind of purple. I guess we're meant to think that this is right after daylight. Oh, okay. It's so it's, it's been just established itchy. that, uh, yeah, yeah, it's been established that Cassidy can handle indirect sunlight. It's kind of a good thing that they happened to land at this time, or he'd have a lot more explaining to do. So they are greeted by Star's trusted man, Marseille, who tells him that the Allfather is still in La Saint Marie, and that some but not all of the men on the base are loyal to Star. Yeah, this page is sort of devoted to, like, the nuts and bolts of Star's conspiracy. He also mentions that. He doesn't know what the Allfather, D'Aranique, wants with Jesse Custer, but he wants him to find out sooner rather than later that they're holding him, probably because, you know, he doesn't want to be seen as keeping secrets. Actually, he says, later rather than sooner. Oh. But yeah, Harry Starr is clearly very concerned with what the Allfather thinks of him, but he'd prefer that D'Aranique do that thinking at a great distance. Hmm. Marseille also mentions that Featherstone has yet to report in. Yeah, that's right. She's a little tied up. Someone had to say it. <laughs> they didn't even do that joke in the comic book, which normally they would. <laughs> normally, if there's a bad pun, it's not to be missed. Well, that particular bad pun, you know. Right, right. So they hop in a jeep, and Star starts telling Cassidy the secret history of the Grail. Alternative history Jesus. Yeah, Jesus did not die on the cross, he says, but was drugged into a coma by his followers. And that's a little bit hard to believe. Crucifixion is, like, incredibly traumatic, even if you're not drugged. Very hard to live through. Plus the, the lashes. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I buy this. But I'm not sure Hair Star buys it completely either. He just says it sort of doesn't matter. Right. So he rose again from the dead on the third day when the drugs wore off. And then Star says... He took a wife called Mary, had several children, and was run over and killed by an awful cart at the age of 48. Whose goddamn testament is that? Weekly World News? 
That is the legend of the Grail. And he continues to explain that the Grail took the children and has allowed them to breed only with each other and still controls the bloodline of Christ. One day, Star says, civilization will fall apart, and when it does, the Grail is going to produce a heaven-sent savior to replace secular leaders. It doesn't matter who we put forward. We've got so many old scrolls and bullshit documentation lying around, we could prove conclusively that Newt fucking Gingrich is the son of God. The descendants are no good for this purpose. He wants it to be someone better. He wants Custer to take that role. Oh, fucking great! I mean, blessed are the meek. <laughs> and that brings us back to San Francisco, where Jesse has apparently just gotten the same story from Hoover and Featherstone. It has to be bullshit. Except I used the word on them. True or not, they believe it. And if God can go missing from heaven, why can't his son fake the crucifixion? Once it looks like he's done it, the human race can consider itself redeemed. He wouldn't have to do it for real. But enough theology. I'm getting a hankering to punch some motherfucker's teeth out. <laughs> I like that line. That's like the comic book lampshading what's going on in this issue. <laughs> yeah. A lot of talk, not a lot of action, but we'll get back to it. We promise. Well, and this is where we establish that Jesse doesn't have any real desire to do harm to Hoover and Featherstone. Mm -hmm. He says they're just goofs. He says he ain't about to start killing defenseless folks. Right, even if they're assholes. Tulip asks if they have to kill the captives to keep their movement secret, and Jesse's not having any of it. But he does say of Harris Star. Gonna kick that bastard's ass so hard he's gotta go to the moon to shit. <laughs> That's a good line. So, since they're not killing the captives, they have to bring them with. Road trip. Yeah. Once they're on the road, we have Tulip complaining about being stuck with Featherstone's twenty-two. Hear that, Featherstone? Next time you mess with us, make sure you're carrying a magnum or something for when she takes it off of you. Yeah, Jesse continues to tease Featherstone, and she calls him a motherfucker. To which Hoover says... Featherstone! And then Featherstone snaps back, Jesus Christ, Hoover, how many times do I have to tell you? God doesn't care if you say motherfucker because it's just a fucking word! And in mid-sentence, she jumps out of the car. <laughs> you two are pure gold. Holy shit! So she escapes by jumping out of a moving vehicle. Jessie pulls over real quick and orders her to come back, but she gets away by holding her hands over her ears. Right, once again, you... Can't be affected by the word if you can't hear it. Yeah, and she knows that she doesn't have to worry about him blowing Hoover's brains out in response because he already said that he has no intention of killing him. Yeah. So she gets away and warns the Grail, which means they'll have to hurry because the Grail is pretty soon going to find out Cassidy's a faith. Oh, and because they lost Featherstone, Jesse decides that they better get rid of Hoover too, but they've got to keep him occupied. So... Here's where Jesse does what I think is the most cruel use of the word, probably in the entire series. Oh, yeah? When he instructs Hoover to count grains of sand on the beach until he gets to three million. What? What was my sin? Fucking with me and mine. Get to it. Back in Masada, Cassidy learns that the Grail fled Israel 1,400 years ago, the place having always been somewhat unstable. And Cassidy comments on a crap fella like yourself tied up in all of this Jewish stuff. One, it's more Christian than Jewish. Two, I have never been a racist. And three, my nationality ceased to mean anything the instant I joined the Grail. I am a soldier, Reverend, and I fight in the only war that matters. The war for eternity. 
the war that decides the fate of the world, and whether it will be ruled by the forces of order or destroyed by the forces of chaos. The war for control. The sheep need their shepherd. This is a good little bit of insight into the character of Star, how he intends to employ the Grail more than following its doctrine, and how he feels that order over chaos is really the most important thing he can impose on the world. Yeah, he sort of reminds me of Loki. Movie Loki, not necessarily comic book Loki. Mm-hmm. And definitely not Norse mythology Loki. Right. I'm talking about Marvel Loki, TM. But, you know, in that first Avengers movie, how... Loki says that he wants to, to free the human race from freedom. Right, yeah. That seems to be Star's basic point of view as well, is that, the, you know, the loss of total authoritarian control would be utter chaos, which would destroy humanity. Right. And we see a number of times that Star seems to think that the world is in an unbearably chaotic state right now. Right. Have you read One Man's War yet? I have. Okay, yeah, so that'll, that'll show us a good bit about why. Yeah. So now Star decides that he would like a demonstration of Custer's power. So he brings Cassidy, who he thinks is Custer, to an old man named Paul, who gets around on crutches. He says he's 90-some years old and has walked with crutches for at least 30. He orders Cassidy to cure him, and... Cassidy is obviously taken aback at this, but he leans over to Paul and he tries to, to beg him to go along with this deception. But Paul doesn't speak any English. Je ne comprends pas, Reverend. Oh, Jesus, why am I not surprised? Yeah, so Cassidy orders Paul, cast aside your crutches and walk! And Paul falls flat on his face. It doesn't always work the first time, you know. Is it just me, or is your accent starting to slip? Okay, so yeah, that ruse might be over at this point. Back in the States, Jesse and Tulip have their flight out to Paris. Jesse compliments Featherstone on her sand, and Tulip comments that she could jump out of a moving car too. Yeah, this page seemed kind of pointless, except to show us a little bit more romantic banter between these two characters, and to, to maybe show that Tulip is a bit jealous of Featherstone for upstaging her. Having the better, you know, action girl moment. The better sand. <laughs> well, you know who has the best sand? Hoover. Because mm. <laughs> it's all orderly. <laughs> yeah, so that scene cuts on a kiss. And back in Masada, Star gets a call from Featherstone and learns he doesn't have the real Custer. Just in case he hadn't figured that one out already. He orders Featherstone to capture Jesse, and he has Marseille bring Cassidy to cell 99, just to be sure and also to bring a machine gun. Yeah. Now, what did you think he was talking about here when he says into the phone, no, that's impossible, insane, how could that be? I don't know. Maybe that's the fact that he's been fooled, but he seems to have figured that one out already. But Maybe it's the fact that Jesse was able to defeat the men he left behind and get Tulip back so quickly. Ah, that's right. Up until now, he has thought that, that Tulip was under their control. Yeah, in fact, when he was trying to get Cassidy to demonstrate Custer's powers, he reminds him, we still have your woman. Yeah, that's that's right. That's what he says, and probably the way that he said it. Now, did you notice that we get one panel here of Featherstone making the phone call, and everybody seems to be leering at her for some reason. Like, all the people surrounding her. 
by the payphone that she's at. Did you understand what they were staring at her for? It was kind of hard to see in this panel, but I think she is covered in, like, blood and dirt from her escape. Oh, I see. So she's just not looking inconspicuous at the moment. Right. Okay, yeah, so machine gun, hard times ahead for yeah, Cassidy. And, and this is the first mention of Cell 99, which is going to come back a few times over the next arc. Yeah, as he is led to Cell 99... Cassidy looks in astonishment at something and just says, fuck. Yeah. They are both sort of talking to an unseen figure here, and Star asks the unseen figure this one's name and is told, Cassidy. He then takes the machine gun that he requested and shoots Cassidy with it many times. Poor fella. We cut back to Jesse and Tulip, obviously in Afterglow. Yeah, good nudity here. <laughs> and there's a, a nice facial expression speechless Jesse is making as well. <laughs> yeah, as he has the line. <laughs> yeah, she says that it was the most perfect of all the perfect fucks they've ever had. But it turns out that he was just trying to get her all amenable so that he could ask her what he wants to ask her which is to stay behind and let him go rescue Cassidy without her. Right, when they get to Paris, he wants her to stay behind. And she is pretty pissed about this immediately. She knows she can handle herself. Yeah, she's much better in a fight than he is. Yeah, I mean, in fact, that's true. He's not bad in a fight, but he's good with his fists and she's good with guns. Yeah. So, much more useful against heavily armed Grail soldiers. Jesse admits the Grail is bigger than anything they've gone up against before. But she retorts that she knows because she had a gunfight with the Grail back at the Sod's place. Yeah, while he was busy beating up a defenseless pervert. Now, he does blame himself for her getting into that alone, which is why he wants to make sure she's safe this time. Now, I think this part is kind of funny because he says that he knows she's just as capable as he is and emancipated and everything. And he mentions that he read his way through the library when he was miserable in Anvil. Right, that's an interesting little detail of his past. Well, yeah, but it's also just funny that, like, in order to have heard the word empowered, <laughs> he had to read a bunch of feminist theory. You know, that would not be the case today. Yeah, that's a fair point. Found feminist theory under F, believe it or not, had me quite a time. Definitely prefer Germaine Greer over the Dworkin woman. He says that men can't help trying to help women, even though he knows she can handle herself. The thought of her getting hurt scares him so much that he forgets it. Yeah, this is one of my favorite bits of dialogue in the series. He says, I begged for your life that day, baby. I begged Jody to let you go in the van, and then I did the same thing the next morning with Grandma. You imagine any other circumstance in the whole goddamn world, ever, where I would beg anyone for anything? And it's true. Like... The comic did a good job of establishing that he's he's very proud and he doesn't take shit off of anybody, but, you know, in that earlier story arc, the All in the Family story arc, he was completely, completely broken down. Yeah, that is very true to these characters, and this conflict is going to come up between them over and over. And Tulip seems moved by his monologue, but not enough to make her change her mind. Yeah. Yeah, she ultimately says, I guess you'll have to learn to live with it, Reverend. Go to sleep. 
You girls sure are hard on the boys that love you. I think this is a really important scene, and this is a really important theme that we keep running into over and over. If there's a point to this series, it might be to deconstruct and problematize sort of classic notions of masculinity, while still reaffirming that masculinity as a concept has its virtues. Like, Jesse is supposed to be emblematic of all the things that are good about quote-unquote masculinity, bravery, doing the right thing. But he's not... But at the same time, he, he undergoes change. Yeah. From a sort of sometimes toxic masculinity to a more, to a more open-minded and, and egalitarian yeah. masculinity. And I, and I think Cassidy is maybe a good example of the toxic aspects. Somewhat, yeah. I don't want to talk too much about Cassidy and his bro thing right now. Well, especially since there's a lot of stuff that we haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. But, anyway, speaking of Cassidy, he is laying there, ostensibly dead, on the floor of cell 99. Star tells two guys to throw out the body, and he grabs them. Yeah, bollocks! Pack of fucking hooers! As Marseille stammers, Star says, Fresh clip! Fresh clip! And he has... Both him and the other soldier open fire on Cassidy and once again empty their magazines. Incredibly, though, Cassidy is still not dead. That's something we'll have to work on. This is clearly not the man we wanted, but based on what Featherstone told me, I think I can hazard a guess. Jesse Custer is coming to us. And we end the issue on Hoover, on the beach, still counting grains of sand. He is nearly to 10,000 when a gust of wind scatters his pile, and with a tear in his eye, he starts over. One, two, three, four. Oh man, what a, what a dramatic page. When I said before that this is the most cruel use of the word that we ever get, it's not as if Garth Ennis doesn't know it. Right, right. The comic book makes very clear that Hoover is being put through an unspeakably awful experience. Yeah, and, and one not necessarily earned by what he did. Right. So, yeah, like I said, that issue, mostly a lot of table setting, but as always, it had great dialogue. Just a bit of action, you know, Featherstone throwing herself from the car and Cassidy getting shot a lot. Yeah, like I said, this is a transitional couple of issues, and the most important thing we get here is probably the conversation between Jesse and Tulip. And it's nice to have these character breaks, so that when we get to the action, we know who these people are and we're invested in them. Yeah, still an important, really interesting issue. Like I said, Jesse's monologue about why he can't stand to see Tulip in danger is one of my favorite bits of dialogue in the series. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's not, it's not as full-throttle, you know, entertaining... As some of the other things we've gotten so far. Right. Well, speaking of unspeakably awful experiences, that brings us to Hellblazer number five, when Johnny comes marching home. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. This is, a, this is a much better Vietnam War issue. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We come to Preacher number 18, Texas and the Spaceman. Now, the cover of this issue is also... Is it the back cover of the trade, or... Yeah, it is. It's the back cover of the trade. It's a pretty well-known piece of preacher art, which shows the lighter 
the side that doesn't say fuck communism, and it's showing the reflection of either Jesse or John Custer. Right, we know that Jesse is the spitting image of his father. Yeah, so the lighter is held in his hand, and in the background we have a Vietnam scene. Yeah, there's helicopters and infantrymen and jungle. Now, one reason to think that this might be Jesse sort of looking back on the war rather than John himself is that he's not wearing a helmet in the reflection. That's a good point. So we find Jesse on a two-hour stopover at JFK Airport, having a drink in the airport bar. Drink and a smoke, I should say. Yeah. Now, is that Tulip sitting at a table nearby, seemingly asleep? It could be. Not actually sure where Tulip is supposed to be while he's in this airport bar. I don't think we see her in the whole issue. No, I don't believe we do. But she'll still be with him when he gets back on the road next issue. So he hasn't ditched her. So as he lights up and the guy next to him lights up, they both set their fuck communism lighters on the bar. They have one look at each other, and the man says quietly, John? No, no, sir. John was my daddy's name. Jesus Christ Almighty, are you John Custer's boy? Yes, I am. Name's Jesse. This guy, an older black gentleman with a handlebar mustache, is Billy Baker, a.k.a. Spaceman or Space. And he served with John in Vietnam. Yeah, he asks Jesse if uh, his father ever talked about him. And Jesse says, If he did, I don't recall. It's been a while since we talked. He died in 1974. Space remembers John as being a good buddy and shows Jesse a picture of the two of them along with a third man. And Jesse's glad to see it. He's never actually had a picture of his father. Been a while, huh? You remember much? Some. I see his face whenever I get near a mirror, but how he moved, the way he acted, that all kind of comes and goes. Guess it's the things he said to me that I recall the best. He tell you how we got these? Spaceman asks, holding up the lighter. Just who gave it to him. Never any details. Jesse, do you want to know a little about your daddy? About what happened to us there in the Nam? Because I hope I ain't out of line here, but I think he'd been cool about you hearing it. Yes, sir. I'd like that more than anything. Which brings us to our title page, Texas and the Spaceman. Yep. You've got a helicopter landing near a group of Vietnam soldiers on parade. Yeah, Marines. John was particular about that point. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, Space's narration starts with a recitation of all the heavy things they had to carry. I wondered if that was a deliberate reference to Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. And he says that they didn't have too many parades. They did have one this day, as a familiar character gets out of the helicopter. Who the fuck is it? It's them boys from NASA, Space. Come to offer you a job. Space, he explains, was short for Spaceman. I got called that because I said I wanted to be an astronaut, you know? And then we recognize the man who got out of the elevator. Elevator? It's not even an elevator. <laughs> Helicopter. It's like a really advanced elevator. Uh, yeah, a long, an elevator. a long distance. Kind of a great glass elevator. What's that? The sequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh. What happens? The Wonkavator? You know, they take off at the end of the movie in the Wonkavator? No, I, I don't remember that part. Okay. Well, it's not Willy Wonka, in fact. It's John Wayne. That's much better. Yeah, and... Willy Wonka's kind of an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Some of those kids deserved it. 
On the other hand, there's the kid who watched a lot of TV. And you know who also grew up watching a lot of TV? Jesse Custer. That's true. And he watched John Wayne on TV. Taught him to be a total awesome guy. So, John Wayne is depicted here pretty much the same way that the Duke is always depicted when Jesse has his semi-imaginary conversations with the Duke. We know he's not really imaginary. He's not his not imaginary conversations. Yeah, they're not with imaginary. This, the, the phantom, yeah. But here, his face is cast in shadow so that we never actually see it, just like when Jesse has conversations with him later on in his life. So Space says that Texas was the nickname for John Custer, and then he starts talking about how John Wayne had this powerful presence about him. And at first I thought he was saying that Texas had a powerful presence about him. You know, Jesse's father. Right, right. But no, he's talking about he's talking about the man. Yeah, which maybe makes this an interesting piece of dialogue as he asks if Jesse has ever been in such a presence, and Jesse says, reckon I have. Yes, because he's been in the presence of John Wayne. Right. So John Wayne gave them a speech. A they speech were... which was mostly bullshit. Yeah, but they didn't even hear it because they were too distracted by his larger-than-life presence. Now, in real life, John Wayne was a big Republican and a big supporter of the war in Vietnam and the fight against communism more generally. Yeah. The Green Berets. This is Vietnam movie. Yeah, yeah, he made a, he made a movie about Vietnam called The Green Berets, which was, I guess, more or less a propaganda piece? Kind of. I don't know if I go so far as to call it a propaganda piece, but it does open with a scene a lot like this, where Wayne's character is in front of a parade of, uh, of soldiers. I don't know if they're Marines or GIs, sorry. Uh, and is telling them about, you know, why it's important that they be there and do what they're doing. Well, if they're Green Berets, they're not Marines, right? Mm, that's, I think that's right. Anyway, I don't think that Spaceman necessarily shares John Wayne's politics, but he's, he's still inspired by the man himself. As they all were. Yeah, and after the speech is over, he opens up a case, and it's full of reflective silver fuck communism lighters. He gives every single Marine one of these Zippos. And on his way back to the helicopter, he stops in front of one soldier, and it's John Texas Custer. He says, got a light, Marine? John lights his cigar. Hmm, thank you, son. What's your name? Custer, sir. Private J. J for what? For John, sir. Well, that's a hell of a name. And you can see just the hint of a smile under the shadow that, that drapes his face. And he gets back in the slick and takes off, and we're all of us left wondering, did it really happen? Except for Custer, Private J. He knows it did. And this is a good panel because you've got Spaceman looking over at Texas as Texas admires his lighter, and then in real time, the older Spaceman is looking over at Jesse as Jesse admires the same lighter. Oh, Steve Dillon, you get to me, you do. <laughs> you did a good job. So, a little later on, we have Space looking wistfully at the stars as he and John reminisce about John Wayne movies. Well, yeah, first they talk about how the nickname Spaceman is sort of making fun of Space, mm -hmm. making fun of Billy, for the fact that odds are he'll never get to go to space. Because of the racism sort of inherent in the, in the armed services. But also, we have Texas saying, sorry about that. Right. So, so yeah, it's like... Well, that's a moment that's in keeping with the character of Texas. Because even though 
we know that John came from the Deep South. We, we've also been shown, at least in regard to Jesse's childhood, the brief time that they knew each other, that he taught him things like, don't judge people by what's on the outside, judge them by what's in them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But in any case, Spaceman is sort of sort of a bit of light teasing about the the unrealism of his aspirations to be an astronaut. And in a way, it's like sort of mildly racist making fun of him. And at the same time, it's maybe just acknowledging the racism mm -hmm. that he's going to have to face. Yeah, yeah. Well, this quiet moment is interrupted by a third man lighting a fart. Yeah, using a fuck communism lighter. This is Ghani Goring, sort of a, the class clown of their unit. Why'd they call him Ghani? Short for gonorrhea. He had it. And Space narrates that Ghani was kind of a weakling, someone who couldn't really handle the numb without Space and Texas looking after him. That's right, and it's at this point with Ghani in the mix that they start talking about their favorite John Wayne movies. Or actually, they're talking about their first John Wayne movies, respectively. Yeah, that's right. Ghani's was Hondo. Texas saw The Searchers first. And Spaceman saw The Conqueror. Which they sort of make fun of, because The Conqueror is not a very good movie. The fucking Genghis Khan one? What the hell do you go to see that for? You're beautiful in your wrath. Shit, I almost died laughing when I heard him say that. Ghani says. Hey, you guys hear a train coming? How about that? A train way out here. That ain't no fucking train. Incoming! And one of their jeeps blows up. Gets hit by a mortar. Yeah. And one wonders if it was Ghani's lit fart that put him onto the location. It's a possibility. I'm not sure. I guess the point of ending the scene that way is just to show that they're kind of constantly under threat. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So we pick up, could be the next morning, could be some days later, with Spaceman in Texas on a work detail. And Texas mentions that their tours are going to be over soon, while Ghani is going to have to stay longer. How's that boy going to make it through this shit without us to look after him? Their gunner Murph says that he's going to look after Ghani, but they don't really buy it because Murph's an asshole. I said look after him, Murph, not fuck him in the ass while he's tying his bootlaces. Space says Murphy was our gunner. He was okay, except the Lord had switched his head for his pecker. You think you're real fucking hardcore, don't you, Custer? Well, just because your big fucking hero yesterday has got the same name as you, that don't mean shit. Hell, I heard he's really called Marion or something. What the goddamn... <laughs> so, uh, John, it is strongly implied, takes a swing at Murph at this point. But when the medic comes over to look at him, what the fuck happened to him? He slipped, slipped. replies everyone in unison. <laughs> Unfortunately, a couple days later, Murph makes sergeant, and so Space, Texas, and Ghani got the shit duty after that. We got volunteered for every shitty detail going, I tell you. Latrines was my favorite. Now, while they're on latrine duty, Spaceman, Texas, and Ghani, this is when we see that Ghani has malaria. Yeah, malaria or something. And Texas orders him to go see the doc, but the next time they go out on an operation, Ghani goes with them. You see the doc like I told you? Forgot. Now, due to somebody stepping on a mine, their group ends up separated from the rest of the squad. It's just Space, Texas, Ghani, Murph, and Lieutenant Van Patten. 
Van Patten was asking to die over there. He was this Ivy League fool from a big banking family, but when all the other rich fathers was buying their boys' deferments, he got his daddy to pull strings to send him to Nam. He wore his rank bars in the bush because he didn't know it made him sniper meat. He was scared shitless. Even he knew he'd made the mistake of his life, but he felt he had something to prove. What dangerous motherfucker. The other fire team has the radio, so unfortunately they have to rely on Murph's navigation to get back to their unit. After a day's wandering, they manage to find a village, and Murph orders them to clear the place so they can ask someone for directions. Texas objects on a number of counts. Uh, they're undermanned, the area's civilians are unfriendly, and three, the place looks pretty goddamn deserted to me, which means it's probably crawling with booby traps or there's some offensive term for a Vietnamese person. Motherfucker waiting in them trees to blow us away. Yeah, and to make matters worse, Ghani with his malaria is... He can barely carry his own weight. Yeah, so Murph ignores all of Texas's objections, and they have to clear the place. And Texas asks Van Patten to let Ghani stay behind, but Murph jumps in. Three can search quicker in two, Custer. And Van Patten backs him up. Don't make me repeat myself, Private. The space narrates, That was the worst ten minutes of my life. Ten minutes expecting your foot to hit metal just before you fly twenty feet in the air, or you trip a wire going into a hut and the last thing you hear is the pin coming out of the grenade. Or maybe there's a flash from the tree line, and crack, and you fall down wondering why your legs quit on you. And then, don't nobody go cheering just yet, but I think it's clear. Now just when they think it's clear, that's when they see an old Vietnamese woman emerging from one of the huts. Right, what they call a Mama San. And Ghani tries to conduct her safely out of her foxhole. It looks like she's actually coming out of a hole in the ground in this panel, right? Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe she is. Now, Spaceman jokes that it's Charlie's grandma. Yeah, and as Ghani is trying to, to guide her to safety, we see that she has a grenade, and a second later, there's nothing left of either of them but blood all over space in Texas. Yeah, that's right. Now, I didn't fully understand this part. Doesn't a grenade have a fuse? Yeah, but it's not a very long one. Okay. Space hears a buzzing noise that eventually resolves into Texas screaming that he's going to kill Murphy for this. Now, Spaceman doesn't object in principle, but he does say that it ain't the fucking time. Yeah, and so Space makes Texas be cool for the moment, and then they both just kneel down and cry for Ghani. Two weeks later, Van Patten, who always wears his bars on patrol, gets the sniper bullet that's been waiting for him, and that's their opportunity. Right, Murph has been sticking close to the lieutenant, knowing they can't go after him without going after the lieutenant. And, and just like Jesse, John doesn't go after innocent men. But as soon as Van Patten is dead, Space says, word spread fast. We were faster. Yeah, they stick Murphy in a latrine barrel... Yeah, he's, he's sitting on the toilet seat, and they come in and lever out the seat out from under him with crowbars, dropping him into the barrel. And then they roll him down the hill, where the Viet Cong open fire on him, and eventually hit him with an RPG. Yeah, this is a crazy, almost comic this sequence of panels as he rolls down this hill, bounces off this ledge, and they... And, and they shoot him out of the air. Well, I guess he lands in a tree, and then they shoot him out of the tree with an RPG. Guess Charles don't take no chances with no Yankee secret weapons. So, like, yes, it is comical. 
I even wrote in my notes, do a barrel roll. <laughs> so, you know, kind of got caught up in the, in the humor of the guy being stuck in a latrine barrel and rolled down the hill. But it's also them killing a guy in cold blood. Yeah. Someone on their own side. Yeah, well, Space goes on to talk about this on the next page. Back at JFK, Space says he's never told anyone that story, not even his wife. I suppose it must seem kind of fucked up, us killing a Marine. Uh-uh. Way it sounds to me, you did the right goddamn thing. I guess we did, but that's what it was like over there, you know? If anyone fucked with you, anyone, you had to be ready to fuck them up good, because otherwise you'd be dead. And that's why your daddy and me was such good friends, you know? Because when you're living on the edge of a knife, when you get so close to a man that he got your life in his hands every day and he knows shit about you, could get you fucking shot, and you can trust him with all that? I tell you, Jesse, never had a friend in my life like I had in John Custer. He goes on to talk about how he looks around the world and normal people have it easy compared to what they went through over there in Nam. I see normal folks just drifting through life, and I want to say fools. If you'd been where I'd been, you'd see you got it easy. You don't have to rely on a man for your life. You don't have to do crazy shit to survive, man. You're never going to really know yourself or the folks you got around you. Would all United Airlines passengers bound for Paris please extinguish all cigarettes and make their way to boarding gate number nine? That's Jesse's flight, so he gets to his feet and he offers Space the picture, but Space insists he keep it. Sir, I can't take this. No, you take it now. All you got's a four-year-old's memory of how he was, Jesse. You ought to be able to remember your daddy like a man. So, they shake hands and part ways. And the issue ends on this quotation. Thinking about Vietnam once in a while, in a crazy kind of way, I wish that just for a while I could be there, and then be transported back. Maybe just to be there. So I wish I was back here again. And we close on Spaceman looking at the lighter and remembering the photo that he and John and Ghani took together. And now with the knowledge that he's the last surviving of the three of them. Right. So that is a wonderful issue. That was a terrific one. Of Preacher. Uh, doesn't have much to do with the main characters, but, but God, what a yarn. And like we said before, it just does a much better job of capturing the horrors of the Vietnam War than the Hellblazer issue that we recently covered on the same topic. Yeah, and again, Garth Ennis did a good job of encapsulating the Vietnam War, and he also did a good job of working sort of the classic themes of this series into it. This is a story that's about men and masculinity and, and how they get by. And we have the contrasting examples of John Custer, who's strong enough to always do the right thing, and Murph is kind of the emblematic representation of toxic masculinity and bluster. Yeah, that's right. And in terms of the series mythology, it does give you a good idea of what John Wayne meant to John Custer and what he means to Jesse. Yeah, that's important too. And sort of the you know, the values that were that were passed from John Wayne to John with that lighter, and then from John to Jesse. Yeah, and again, it's not John Wayne's politics. It's not necessarily being pro-war, but a way that John and subsequently Jesse handled himself in a kind of life-or-death situation like that. Right. Handle themselves and, and take care of the men around them. Yeah, but bravery and integrity and trying to do the right thing. Yeah. That's good preacher. Yeah, that's good comic books right there. 
So, our next creature issue will take us to the south of France, and a big showdown between Jesse and the Grail, and maybe a third party will be there too. Who knows? But first, join us next week when Kelly Jones gives Sam Keith a run for his money in Dream of a Thousand Cats. <laughs> hey, listen, if you like our show, we'd be darn pleased if you would follow us on Twitter, maybe subscribe to us on iTunes, give us a review. That's oh. at Vertiguys on Twitter, or you can get in touch with us at vertiguys at gmail.com. Yeah, we also have a website. It's vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes and show notes on every episode. Hey, and as always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody.